episode 346. How did health systems get addicted to the inflated prices they charge employers and some patients? 2021 update. Today, I speak with Peter Hayes. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with Peter Hayes, who is president and CEO at the Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine and a national presence in healthcare strategy, innovation, and a frequent keynote speaker. One thing, among many, that Peter said during our conversation today struck me. He said it will take a village to fix what ails the healthcare industry in this country. There are too many interdependencies. This point obviously resonates around these parts because it's the rationale for the Relentless Health Value podcast. We started the show on the recognition that if you want to achieve anything in healthcare, you cannot do it without collaboration slash cooperation slash grudging acquiescence of other stakeholders in the patient journey or the payment journey. And when I say you can't do anything, I mean, you can't sell anything, you can't improve patient care, and most relevant to this particular episode, you can't contain prices. If we're talking about health systems, for example, hospitals and the like, they are not going to curtail their price hikes or improve the value of care delivered or safety or infection control, really, unless patients and employers and CMS and others demand that they do. And unless employers and others do some of the five things that Peter Hayes mentions at the end of our conversation today. Spoiler alert there. For context to this discussion, let's check in with some of the biggest, most powerful health systems in this country. If I limit this comment to the nonprofit ones, and I say nonprofit with air quotes, because what does that mean exactly? Look, I know there are many health system execs that listen to this show, but there's some inalienable facts here. And let's talk about them with the intent of fixing them, because nothing is going to get fixed that isn't talked about. So it's not my nature to mince words, so I won't. Many hospitals are, by almost every account, pretty darn inefficient, and they don't do cost accounting. But then they'll scream and claim to be losing money when paid the exact same prices for certain services that other hospitals can get paid and make a fair profit. Crappy workflows cost money. Talk to anybody who's watched even like the trailer to a Six Sigma course. Another thing that costs money is when all the burnt out doctors quit and you have to recruit new ones. But that's a topic for a different day. Listen to the show with Arshad Rahim, MD, link in the show notes. But there's also inefficiencies in how many health systems purchase supplies. Listen to episode 281 with Rob Austin for more on that. Further, paying the C-suite millions of dollars, but maybe underpaying or understaffing nurses has consequences. There's complaints about Medicare payer mixes, but then somehow there's enough spare shackle to put a waterfall in the lobby. Nonprofit hospitals also don't pay any taxes, keep in mind, which is a huge financial windfall, especially when they provide vanishingly small amounts of charity care compared to revenue. Link in the show notes to the top 10 health system hall of shame in this category 
Here's another point to ponder. Amongst the hundreds, thousands of requests I get from PR firms pitching guests to come on the show, there are plenty from what appears to be a pretty large cottage industry that I had never heard of before. I'll call it the real estate for nonprofit hospitals cottage industry. From what I can gather by the promo copy, this involves buying up medical office buildings, not paying any real estate taxes, and then leasing out the space. I should have one of these guys come on the show just to shine some light on whatever this apparently pretty common shenanigan is. As Vikas Sani from the Laun Institute has said, no margin, no mission can become an excuse for all kinds of questionable behavior. So bottom line, we have employers, employees, taxpayers, cash pay patients whose federal and or state and or local taxes are going to support these nonprofit hospitals. But then there's like this double tax because they claim to be losing money on Medicare patients. They justify cost shifting some pretty big bucks onto the commercially insured patients who are then paying on average some wildly inf inflated prices for healthcare services. This might be considered a double tax if you think about it. Tax dollars going to the IRS directly and then after tax dollars buying that knee replacement for $125,000, that should cost like $25,000. Consider that a $100,000 double tax. But why should a hospital with a motive to maximize margins quit it with their questionable and secretive billing practices if employers just pay whatever the bill is, no fuss, no muss? Short answer, they won't. So it's going to be up to someone else in the village to make it untenable to continue. It's going to be up to another party to slow that roll. In this conversation, Peter Hayes talks about the RAND, R-A-N-D, Hospital Price Transparency Study. There's a link in the show notes to that. One last thing that may or may not be relevant here, but I can't resist a good sidebar. New catchphrase I've been hearing lately, the, in air quotes, deconstruction of hospitals. Have you heard it too? In fact, I was listening to Zeev Neuwers' podcast recently that featured Raphael Rakowski. There's also a link in the show notes to that episode. Raphael said that the average fixed cost of any given brick and mortar hospital is 65% of revenue. So just having the building, the physical plant, and paying for all the things you need to pay for to run that physical plant is really high. I heard Jason Wells say in a health impact forum the other day that it costs a million dollars to build a bed in California due to all the regulatory requirements. Add to that something Kristen Deacon highlighted the other day on LinkedIn about how operating rooms are empty 30% of the time. So it makes me wonder whether some of the issues that hospitals have when they claim that they are losing money on Medicaid or Medicare is because their fixed costs are out of whack. This potentially disproportionate situation, however, is one reason why hospitals really have to watch it for hospitals at home or virtual offerings. After all, this is exactly how Amazon ate everybody's lunch. Erase 65% of your costs or even 50% of your costs. And that cost plus profit threshold becomes a weapon of mass destruction. At the end of this podcast, the very end, so if you're in a rush, jump to like 28 minutes or something, Peter gives five ideas for employers to limit the ability for hospitals to take advantage. If you're a hospital exec that's listening, I would urge you to please help your local employers do these things. Let's all get on the same team here to improve the health of our communities with pricing and business models that are reasonable and fair. Don't be like, the hospital that Katie Talento is going to talk about in an upcoming episode who won't do direct contracting with employers because the coding is kind of a hassle. Seriously now. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. 
Peter Hayes. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. I am delighted to be here and look forward to our conversation. I am delighted to have you back on the show, Peter. You've definitely talked about the hospital, in air quotes, addiction to upcharging commercial payers with margins to cover waste and inefficiencies that are inherent in their system. When we say commercial payers, who we're talking about here are employers primarily, maybe patients themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think when we talk about commercial payers, we're really looking at an insurance that's coming through the, the major carriers, the Buka carriers, if you will, the, the you know the Cygnus, the Aetnas, the Blue Cross, and actually that includes both you know businesses that are buying coverage for their employees, but it also includes all the individual coverages, people that are buying their health insurance, you know, whether they're self-employed or their employer doesn't provide it. So it's it's both the commercial and individual markets are where the prices are so dramatically different than than what they get from the public pay. Medicare is paying what Medicare is paying. Medicaid is paying what Medicaid's paying. Hospitals are what they're basically doing is cost shifting because they can't charge Medicaid or Medicare patients any more than what they're charging. You know, the sky's the limit kind of on the commercial side. There's no caps there. So the prices that hospitals are charging commercially insured or self-pay patients go up and up and up. Did I get that right? Yeah, and it it gets a little more complex because the the talking points the hospitals will use, RAND has done a lot of work to look at hospital pricing across the United States. And actually, it is a published report. It's RAND 3.0. It's called Hospital Price Transparency. Hospitals have said for a long time that they're losing their shirts on Medicare and, you know, Medicaid. This report takes a look at when when hospitals are paid by Medicare, they're actually being reimbursed for their cost. And those costs are determined every year the hospital has to file a report that's signed off by the chief financial officer that says, here's our cost. Medicare looks at that. They adjust it for regional differences. They adjust it for wages, cost of living. So presumably the reimbursement from Medicare covers the cost of a hospital to deliver those services. Coming in January, Rice University is now going to put up as a public website, is going to be able to look at hospital finances for any hospital in the country, and it will boil down to what is the hospital actually making or not making on Medicare? What are they actually making or not making on you know, Medicaid? And what is their actual charity care? And it's really interesting. There are a lot of hospitals that actually are not losing money on the combination of Medicare and Medicaid. They're actually at break even or a little bit above. The other thing they will show in what we're talking about are the commercial and individual markets. Those reimbursement levels for hospitals around the country average about two and a half times what it costs. That's their margin. It's two and a half times the cost that Medicare is allowing. Most of the margins of hospitals come off of those individual and commercial markets. And it's it's a significant number. If you, as I said, the average is about 200% of Medicare. If you reduce that twice, it would reduce healthcare costs for all of us by about 40%. So it is a significant number. And it's really not in, you know, hospitals will argue it's the payer mix. The RAND said the price of being charged by hospital has nothing to do with payer mix. Hospitals also suggest that there's a relationship between the cost that they're charging and quality. 
And actually, there's almost an inverse relationship. You have some of the highest quality hospitals that have some of the lower prices. That's been a lot of conversation. It's going to become very public in January. This is really becoming apparent in the hospital pricing transparency rules that already exist that went into effect January 1st, 2021. Okay, so you just mentioned that there has been this RAND study, and now there's a Rice University study that, that's coming out. Basically, the point of both of those studies is to really try to quantify, are hospitals, in fact, losing money on Medicare and or Medicaid? And what you're suggesting, both of these very large, well-respected studies have, have shown is that the answer is largely no, that hospitals are doing just fine or should be doing just fine, thank you very much, on on Medicare and, and Medicaid reimbursements, at least in the aggregate. But yet they still continue to charge commercial payers 200, 280, you know, that's double, more than double yeah. of what should be a break even at a minimum because there's no cap there. It's kind of like, well, if you can charge it, why wouldn't you, right? I mean, that, that seems to be the, the implication there. Yeah, I totally agree. Yes. If we're talking about how hospitals are then arriving at those commercial patient charges, you know, I mean, I could see in a regular entity, like if, if we're just talking about whatever widget manufacturer, the CFO and then the strategy team is going to sit in an office and be like, you know, how, how much will the market bear? And then you charge that number because you can get it. Like that's how a normal business would operate. Is that how it's operating? You know, I know we all don't like to think this because the hospitals have mission statements that your average widget manufacturer does not have. But is that effectively what's going on at, at some of these health systems? Absolutely. I mean, I think it actually gets more complicated that you just referenced. We had talked prior to this call about Eric, Dr. Eric Bricker, who does a publication. He just came out just this week saying the real issue becomes a lot of hospitals don't do cost accounting. They really don't know what each procedure and widget of service set that they're delivering, what it really costs to produce that. All they well, really well, focus. Let me, yeah, so let me just interject. Okay, so if they don't know, how does Medicare know? Medicare will go in and they they know what the, the gross costs are. I mean, they know what their total cost of operations are. What they don't know is how to allocate that back to individual procedures. What Medicare does Medicare looks at what the gross revenues are, but Medicare also has a methodology by they start looking at episodes of care. So they sort of know what goes into, and it's called DRGs. And so they really have a way to start looking and starting to, to at least point to four episodes of care for a procedure. They start to know what a reasonable sort of cost is for those things. So, so, so Medicare has some ways through their databases to do that. They just, a lot of hospitals just aren't at that level of sophistication that, that, that do it in that same methodology, if you will. Okay, so despite the fact that Medicare, because Medicare is, has some sophistication here, can figure out what the cost of providing a service should be, the hospitals themselves don't do cost accounting and they're somewhat clueless in the same regard. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and I'll go to a real life story in our marketplace where there was a fairly large hospital and pretty honest conversation with the, the CFO at the time. And, you know, you were spot on. You said earlier, most businesses, I was in the supermarket business. I mean, most businesses start when they do a budget. They start from what do we think our sales can be? I mean, what do we think 
are, you know, consumers are willing to spend in our store. What's our revenue line? Then you do the budget and then you look at the expense line. And a lot of times what companies will do is saying, we really can't adjust our, our revenue. We're in a competitive market. This is what we think we can do. Then we meet our budget goals by pulling in expenses, reducing payrolls, doing whatever is necessary. The CFO told us in the hospital financial world, in their world, they start the budget upside down. They really start as, what do we want to spend money on? And they come up with a total expenditure line for the system. Then they take a look at their revenue line and say, well, in order to get the margin we need, we're just, we need to increase our total revenue by 7%, 8%, 9%, whatever it is. And they use that to drive their revenue. In the past, the way hospitals have been reimbursed is they come up with what they call their master charge list, which is really just a like a retail price, like on, on an automobile. They'll say, you know, their starting point at one point in time, they came up with a unit price for all the services. They didn't really know what it cost, but they knew what they needed for total revenue. That master charge list becomes, and some of them haven't been adjusted in years. And so if the hospital needs 8%, they just go through and adjust their master charge list by 8% for every single line item. And that's how they have pretty much put their budgets together, you know, in prior years. That's changing a little bit as payment methodologies change. But that's how they've they've kind of arrived at their numbers they have. In our market, hospitals are saying, you know, and it's been historically the same, and it goes back to Yui Reithart that said it's the price is stupid. Hospitals in this marketplace, you know, if CPI is 3%, they expect total revenue growth somewhere almost double digits. I mean, they're between the 7 and 10% corridor. That's been their, their growth in revenue historically. The process that you're just explaining relative to how hospitals decide how much to charge, they look at what their current pricing is, they decide what they want to <laughs> purchase this year, you know, be it a new robotic surgery tool or a waterfall in the lobby, you know, like whatever they're choosing to spend money on because, you know, as we just talked about, charity care might not be super high on that list for some of these. And then they just across the board have a seven whatever percent price increase. It doesn't matter to them really what the inflation rate is. It's not like they're pegging their increases to the inflation rate or anything. They're just figuring out what they want to charge and then they are charging it. And this is obviously how you wind up with band-aids that cost like 95 bucks or a Tylenol pill that's 10 bucks a pill or, or something like that. Because if you're sort of indiscriminately across the board raising prices, then if something was marginally out of whack 25 years ago, it's going to wind up being really out of whack if you every year yeah. exacerbate that, that issue. Again, if you don't have employers or anybody pushing back, there's been a number of different shows talking about how insurance carriers themselves sort of have, again, it's, it's super complicated, but no real incentive at the end of the day to, to, to push back. So, you know, if I can raise my prices with no negative consequences, then why wouldn't I? There's plenty of accountability to spread around for where we are. But in some cases, the health plans in our marketplace, you know, over the last couple of years, hospitals have been allowed to merge and consolidate. So we have a situation in our state where one health system provides 60% of all the health care in the state. I mean, they, they own 80% of the physician practices. So 60% of every health care dollar is going to one health system. And as the health plans have tried to negotiate with that health system about, gee, we'd really like to, to discuss pricing, 
what that health system has said is, gee, you, you either take the prices that we want to provide or we won't be in your network, which really creates problems for the health plans that they can't go to market to employers and individuals and not have one of the major health systems being part of their provider network. So it's, it's really an uneven playing field at this point in some markets. And, and a lot of the markets have become highly concentrated. So that really compounds the market leverage a lot of these health systems are having. It has been proven endlessly. Work by Zach Cooper and and many other economists has clearly shown. I mean, without a doubt, consolidation raises prices. I think the last I saw, it raises prices on average twenty three percent. So if you're yeah, in exactly. if you're in a, a market with one health system, then effectively that health system has consolidated their negotiating power. Obviously, capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. It is exploitation. And that's pretty clearly what's happening in certain markets. So if I'm an employer in these markets and I'm, I'm funding that 23% lift in, in prices, do I have no options? There are very few options. I mean, our alliance is made up of purchasers and employers. And, and frankly, in the last two years, because of COVID, their concentration has been, how do we keep our employees and families healthy and well? They really don't want to create any disruption for employees. They, they know their employees are stressed. They've, you know, they've really, there's been a lot of, you know, consequences of COVID from, from what it's done. So a lot of employers are really unwilling to do anything, especially now in the times of labor shortages, you see help wanted ads everywhere. They're really reluctant to, to challenge the health system by saying, gee, you know, we're going to take out 60% of the providers in this market and they're not going to be part of your health plan because they're, they're really worried about what that does to what's their message to their employees. What does that do for their competitors that they're trying to compete with? For So it's really put some handcuffs on purchasers. But I do think, and it's really starting to happen, if, if this market's going to change, purchasers have to step up and start demanding more accountability, more transparency, and they're going to have to start saying enough is enough and really start having some some real conversations with the, with the provider networks. You know, I'd be curious whether, and obviously I'm being super reductive here, so forgive me for this example that has complexity, which I'm not addressing, but you know, what if there was an employer who said, okay, we're paying 23% effectively too much here, probably more than that. I mean, because if you start looking at these compounded prices, you know, if they're going up seven, 8% every single year, like prices are going to double every, what, 10 years at that rate. So Let's say I'm an employer and I'm like, healthcare is the second biggest line item in my balance sheet here. It's obviously super expensive. Instead of paying these exorbitant rates, I'm going to try to figure out some kind of travel model, you know, center of excellence model or something like that. We're going to bypass this this health system and then I'm going to give everybody a 10% raise or 20% raise, you know. So if we're talking about talent retention, I, I would think that the ability to pay a much higher wage, you know, it's a zero sum game here. If an employer is spending money on healthcare, they're not spending money on other things, you know, maybe that's a strategy. You're spot on. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had kind of at one point released, yeah, about 95% of wage stagnation over the last two decades 
has been caused by the increase in you know healthcare costs, both for the you know employee and family and the business. You are starting to see a huge uptick in using what you're describing as sort of center of excellence programs. Some of the states across the country are now becoming some of the most progressive purchasers in the state because they're really bumping up against state budgets and other things. But we, the state here, put in a center of excellence program with Carum Health. There's been two remarkable findings. One is for things like they're doing, you know, joint replacements, bariatric surgeries, backs. Their model is the employee doesn't pay any doesn't pay any out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no copays, no travel costs. Walmart has done something similar. They're finding that about a third of the time for the hips and knees, for joint replacements, about 30% of the time the procedures don't need to be done. So there's a huge savings there. For spinal procedures, it's much more like 50% of the time. So it really takes out some of the inappropriate utilization. Where it's done, it's done at a bundled rate, a guaranteed rate. So instead of paying that $100 for an aspirin and something for something else, it is just a bundled rate. And it's warranted on the back end. There is there's a warranty on it saying if there is a complication, then the patient and plan aren't going to pay anymore. It's all the, the facility assumes the risk. And the average savings, Rand studied this, the average savings for Carum Health was about 45% per procedure. So significant savings. And more importantly, just recently, they announced net promoter scores, which are really what is the patient's experience with the care that's being delivered. As they go through the Buka plans, the Cygnus, the Aetnas, the Blues, they're in the low single digits. And, and net promoter score goes from a negative 100 to a positive 100. In Maine, for the state of Maine, that Center of Excellence program had a net promoter score of 100, which is which is the maximum. So it saves money, it reduces inappropriate care, reduces cost, and patients have a much better patient experience. So that is starting to happen. The last time that you were on the show, you were you gave an example of when you were at the supermarket, there was a hip replacement, I think, that cost a million dollars by the yes. time the patient had all the follow-up surgeries because the first one was messed up and, you know, just the exorbitant pi- prices of, of the original surgery and then all of the follow-ups. So, you know, r- right there is just a perfect example of if you're a self-insured employer, by not doing stuff like this, you can wind up spending a million dollars. Like, imagine all the other things that that, that supermarket could have done with a million dollars other than enrich somebody else. But part of what we're talking about here also there's a reactive component to this, but then a prospective component to this, you know, like reactively, okay, great, you can save some money. But if proactively, prospectively, you know what the costs are or what the costs should be, then there's the opportunity to direct patients, to navigate patients to places, providers who are charging a fair price for a high quality service. And, and, you know, so the navigation term is coming up more and more. Let's talk about, obviously, at the beginning of this year, there was some price transparency legislation that was passed, which is, you know, the compliance is spotty, obviously, but hospitals are now required to post their prices that they have negotiated with different carriers. And then we have the payer version of that coming out. So payers are also going to be required to, to post their, their pricing as well. Has that had any impact? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple outcomes. The first and foremost thing that we're really hearing about, along with those transparency rules, 
has really upped the ante for any plan sponsor, any employer that's providing a health plan. They have fiduciary responsibility for those plan assets. So what a lot of employers are really getting nervous about is under that fiduciary requirement, if if they if they're for instance, if there was a recent attorney that ruled if they are sending care to a hospital that is non-compliant with reporting the transparency information, there could be an argument that if they're spending health care dollars there on behalf of their employees and their plan, that they're not a good financial steward and they have financial liability for that because they don't know if they're getting a good value for those dollars or not because that hospital fails to report. So that's really starting to make a lot of the plan sponsors really nervous. When you say a lot, Peter, are you talking about, you know, like the 2% of the most forward thinking ones or, or are we talking about like anything approaching the middle of the bell curve? And I know that typically how things transpire is there's a few that get wind of it and then it's those few, you know, in a crossing the chasm type fashion are, are the ones that inform the early majority. But, but like how pervasive is this concern? It is the bell curve, but I, I think we're, we're probably halfway up that bell curve, if not more. I mean, I would say in the last six months, for sort of the national groups that really assemble the purchaser's voice, things like the Leapfrog Group, things like the National Alliance that's in D.C. have been sponsoring actually ERISA attorneys that are they're beating their drums saying this is a, a train wreck coming at plan sponsors because effective January, so January 1, 2021, it was hospitals that had a report. January 1, 2022, it's been pushed off a couple months, but you also need to have this from brokers. Everybody else that's sort of in the supply chain for a plan sponsors need to disclose their fees. So brokers presumably are also going to have to disclose to the employer, the plan sponsor, their total compensation. Some of it gets reported to the states, but it's a fraction of a lot of the times what their total revenue flows are. So it, it it's becoming more mainstream. You know, a lot of any attorneys that are revising plan sponsors are telling them you need to start asking questions. We actually had one of our more sophisticated purchasers ask us, we don't think our, you know, our plan and our hospitals are going to be compliant. Can we do something to help them? So it's it's really starting to become and it's going to bubble up. I think it's going to be the hot issue in the next six to nine months. Kristen Deacon was on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the CAA, which does in fact require plan sponsors to report any of these entities that are not disclosing prospectively. So coming from a bunch of different directions, the ante is certainly upping here. Going back to the original part of your question, and where I'm starting to see some impact of this, again, there was there was a great example where these hospitals have to report their cash price and they have to report what each health plan in the marketplace is paying them. So it was a great example from Lafayette, Indiana, where a particular maternity procedure, the cash price in that hospital was $3,000. And most of the health plans were paying that hospital for that same procedure closer to $30,000. And both patients and plan sponsors are starting to scream saying, if if the patient can pay $3,000 cash and not go through their plan, they're going to be much better off. The problem becomes in these high deductible plans with high co-pays where the out-of-pocket costs can be 
you know, 10,000 bucks, you've got a situation where what's the value that the, the health plan networks are delivering? And a lot of employers are starting to ask, how can you have a cash price that, you know, is a fraction of what the health plans are actually paying the hospital? So I think it's going to create, already starting to create uncomfortable conversations, both with health systems, but also with health plans. Yeah, indeed, because if the cash price is a true reflection of the value of the service, so that would mean that the value of the service is $3,000, right? But if a patient with a high deductible plan is paying whatever percent, you know, of the cost of a $30,000 service, then they're paying $10,000 out of pocket. If, If I'm a plan and I got fiduciary responsibility here to ensure that my plan is not enriching others, but you have employees, then that plan has employees running around that just spent $7,000 dollars needlessly obviously it, it it strikes me as being problematic for anybody that has ERISA responsibility right absolutely and it's also it explains why so many hospitals have been non-compliant because they now realize their revenue you know how are, and then even within plans blue cross plan depending on which plan you have whether it's an HMO or a PPO that plan itself can be paying different rates so it's really starting at you know bring the question to the forefront, where is the money going? Who are the intermediaries along the way? And, you know, it's it's really bankrupting both the plan and the employees. Some of these same hospitals, if they don't pay that $30,000 procedure in their deductibles, they're being chased in, in surprise medical billing. And it's a third leading cause of bankruptcies in the country are these medical bills. So it it, you know, I think the whole dialogue around how we pay for hospital services is going to really change. Peter, if you were just going to summarize your advice to employers, say, at this moment in time, what would you be telling employers to do? One, I would, because of the fiduciary in what we just talked about, demand that any of their suppliers they're using, brokers, plans, PBMs, they need to get that transparent information in their hands so they can do due diligence. More importantly... Okay, so disclose their prices. Disclose prices. And fees. I think, too, they should really look at that RAND study, really understand what they're currently paying for the services they're getting, and really start thinking about really asking their health plans to justify some of the prices they're paying into the health systems. And and maybe even partner in our state, our our one of our largest health plans is really asking the employers, can they go with them to the table and talk to the health systems to, to have a discussion about more reasonable, fair pricing to use in the marketplace? Three, I'd really have them look at the Rice University studies that are going to come out because that's really going to, especially local employers that can actually look at their local hospital and all of a sudden have a better idea of what the real finances are for the hospital and have that honest conversation. I would look at direct contracting, going to these health facilities and really talking to them about, is there a way they can direct contract to get different rates? I really challenge their brokers and consultants to, are they really bringing to the table the things that are driving the most value to both the patient and employer? And what are their revenues? Because sometimes there's a real disconnect between some of those, some of those items. 
in sum, we've got five things here. We have demand prices, demand price transparency, as well as fees, broker fees, which, you know, given the CAA, as well as the transparency regulations should be the rule of the land. Number two, look at RAND. Three, look at the Rice University work that's coming out in January. We also have direct contracting. And then earlier in the show, we had talked about a COE model. You had mentioned Carum in, in Maine. Peter Hayes, is there any place that you would recommend for more information about what you are working on and are up to? Yeah, we have a website, Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine. We have actually got a listing of some of the programs that we're doing. We are of Maine, but the programs we have introduced are things like transparent PBMs and the CARAM Center of Excellence. Those programs can go to any employer across the country. So we are really trying to expand our footprint. We really think aggregating the purchaser's voice that we are all are asking for similar things is a way that we can really move the marketplace. It's going to be up to us to change where we are. We really welcome you to to check us out and we'd be glad to have a conversation at any point in time. Peter Hayes, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey, as always. was glad to share. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.